Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. This is Athletics Life Stories with your host, Chris Broadbent. The only way he could get his words into the magazine was to type them all out and then literally post them who can complain? I mean, I, I write about people running, jumping and throwing for a living. I mean, it's it's a dream job. As a, as a little 11-year-old watching the Moscow Olympics, I remember after the 800-metre final, we, we went outside and, and had a race. Welcome to Athletics Life Stories with myself, Chris Broadbent. Today, I am joined by Jason Henderson. Jason is a long-time editor of the sport's leading publication, Athletics Weekly. In a 25-year career at the publication, Jason's covered five Olympics, five Commonwealth Games. He's covered world championships as far afield as Osaka, Edmonton, London and Oregon. He has interviewed anyone who is anyone in the sport for the last quarter of a century. He was part of the team that transitioned the title to a monthly magazine with daily online news after the challenges of the pandemic. Jason, it's good to see you. Hello, how are you doing? It's good to be part of the new podcast. Yeah, good to have you. So, so what, what is your role now at Athletics Weekly? Um, I'm I'm head of digital, although I uh, I kind of just generally regard myself as an athletics writer. You know, I just I just kind of cover the sports of athletics generally. But my my uh, exact title is head of digital. We we had a few changes during the pandemic. Um, our our weekly magazine, which has been which had been going from 1945 right up until the pandemic in 2020, it it, it stopped as a weekly and it became monthly. So we've now got a monthly magazine. So my colleague uh, Ewan Crumley looks after the monthly magazine primarily, which, as I speak to you, went, went to press yesterday, our latest issue. So it was a bit of a full on day yesterday. And um, and I, I look after the digital side of things. So uh, the websites, all the social media, a little bit of a never ending job, a bit relentless. But uh, but that's the way I like it. Good, good stuff. But it's, it's obviously a giant of the sport, Athletics Weekly, and we'll get on, onto that later on. But first of all, I want to find out a bit about you, really, Jason, how um, your personal career, your career in athletics was. When you were growing up, um, was athletics and running part of your family when you were young? Um, not really part of the family. I don't, I don't think any of my family members were particularly interested in it. In it, my uh, my mum did a bit of sprinting when she was at school. I think she was she was quite decent, but. I don't think I inherited any of her talent at all. I was I was always very much just a, a club runner standard. Um, and initially, like like lots of lots of lads growing up in in the in in uh, in the UK, I grew up in the north of England. I was I was into my football, so I spent most of my younger life just kicking a ball around. Uh, but then the Moscow Olympics came round in 1980, and I was 11 years old, and and it was the whole Cohen-Ovet thing. Daley Thompson, Alan Wells, and it just captured my imagination like you wouldn't believe. And and very quickly, I just got totally obsessed with athletics. Uh, I think at the at the age of twelve or thirteen, I had subscriptions to not just Athletics Weekly, but American magazines like the U.S. edition of Runner's World, um, an old American magazine which has long since d- died, called The Runner. 
and uh, and a British magazine as well, which is long long since defunct, which is called Marathon and Distance Runner. Uh, so as a as a as a young teenager, I was I was get, getting these magazines delivered through the post and and literally just devouring every page and lapping it all up and all the athletics coverage that was on television with with commentators like David Coleman and Ron Pickering at the time. I was I was lapping all this up and of course the, the whole Cohenovet thing was was reaching its peak. And it wasn't just Cohen Ovet. Steve Cram came along, Peter Elliott, you know, Dave Moorcroft and, and countless others and, and lots of athletes from overseas as well who I was fascinated in. You know, Steve Scott and John Walker and, and you know, loads of mainly middle distance runners. That was that was my thing that I was most interested in. But I had an interest in all the other events as well. And uh, yeah, just kind of rumbled through my teenage years, just just literally being a an athletics anorak. Hmm, it's great. It, it was. It, it's hard to articulate now, but it was. It, it was back page news, wasn't it? Karen Ovet and Cram and prime time TV as well. It was very, very. They, they were proper household names back then, weren't they? Oh yeah, very much so. Yeah, I, th- I think it. I mean, I mentioned the Moscow Olympics as the thing that kind of triggered triggered it with me, but I think it was it was kind of rumbling on a little bit before that as well, because in in seventy nine. Uh, there were loads of world records. Uh, Sebco set three world records in 41 days, and 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 uh, Steve Obet was in was in great form as well, in record-breaking form, and and Crammy was starting to come through as well. And stories you you remember like like uh, BBC literally interrupting the the 9 p.m. news. I think the news is on at 10 p.m. these days on on BBC One, but back then it was nine o'clock, and they would literally pause the news to show a a world record attempt from from uh, from Cohen Ovet uh, back in back in those days, and I mean newspapers were I mean the the newspapers are still still pretty strong, you know they're, they're still all out there, you, you know we see Sky TV and BBC News 24 they go through the papers every evening, but you know it's it's no secret that the the newspapers quite aren't quite as mighty as they were years ago, but back then you know around about 1980 they were they were really at the peak i mean everybody read a newspaper the, the newspapers had tremendous power and cohen ovet were were just all over the papers you know back page news front page news um i particularly remember just before the moscow olympics uh the uh, i think the sun did a like a computer analysis this is this is before people had computers <laughs> where they they'd thrown all the, the, the sun had one though <laughs> the sun had one so they threw all the statistics in, into a pot and uh, and then they they measured the two athletes with re- with regards to different categories like speed, stamina, tactical acumen, experience, and so on. And then at the end of all this, they they had the scores, and the scores would say that you know Ovet would maybe win the 800 and Co would win the 1500, or which whichever way around it was, I can't remember which which results they came to. But but um, but yeah, the, I mean this was this was like a a double page spread in the. In the sun, it's one particular uh, piece that I remember. But but yeah, it was it was just literally all over the place. I mean, these guys were not just household names in the UK; they were they were global sporting superstars. So it was uh, you know it was hard hard to avoid hard to avoid their exploits. And um, as a as a little eleven year old watching the Moscow Olympics, I remember after the 800 meter final, I uh, I watched it around at a friend's house, and he was there with his brother. And after the race, we we went outside and and had a race round the block, 
where we, we, we raced down the street and then down this back alley. And of course, we did two laps. So two laps around the block. I don't think uh, my pal and his brother were, were particularly talented. They were even less talented than me. So I, man- I managed to beat them. But of course, I, I, I didn't just beat them. I had, I had to kind of sit on their shoulder and then wait until about 50 metres to go before I then kicked because this was all, uh, you know, this is all the stuff that you saw Cohen Ovet do on the telly. So I was kind of, you know, act, acting it out around the street uh, moments after the Olympic final. And, you know, I mean, I, I didn't obviously didn't know at that stage I'd gone to have a career writing about the sport. I had no idea. But but, um, you know, looking back, I was obviously ridiculously into it. Whereas my friend and, and his brother went off to play cricket the following day and you know, just just had a passing interest in the sport. I I, I obviously was uh, a bit of a a bit of a, I kind of stayed the course, so I'm uh, still here now, still still covering athletics all these years later. So you're obviously inspired by it. Did you, did you go down to and join your local club from there? Um, yeah, not not straight away. Um, I think I mean I'm I'm often aware of this as young athletes. I mean it's if you're getting into the sport for the first time, if you haven't got anybody to kind of tell you what there is and you, you just don't know you know you just you're just kind of feeling your way through it you, you know you so initially I, I think very early on I mean I, I didn't even know a magazine called Athletics Weekly existed I I, I eventually found it a year or so later I think the the father of uh, a fellow athlete uh, told me about it and picked it up and and showed it me and and said this is this is where you can find out about all the fixtures to do you can find out meetings that you can compete in and it was kind of the same with athletics clubs as well. I think as a very young child, I just thought everything happened in the schools. So, of course, I was part of a school cross-country club, athletics in the summer. We had matches against other other schools. You know, there would have been a kind of town championships for for the schools. But I just didn't know that any kind of club athletics existed. And it probably took me until about the age of 13 or so until I, you know, realised that this kind of parallel world of, of uh, club athletics existed and of course at that stage I I joined a club then and, and then you know like lots of young athletes I was doing the the kind of two sets of competitions you know the school stuff and then the club stuff as well but but yeah you, you don't always know about these things straight away it takes you a bit of time before you uh, you kind of pick it all up and of course you know back then in the in the early 80s there's no internet there's no social media so you're, uh, you know, you're literally just re- relying on print magazines and local newspapers or or word of mouth. Did you have any success as a, as a young runner that you can recall? Um, not particularly. I was I was one of these many just young, young club runners who just kind of rumbles around. Um, I did the English schools cross country champs, uh, finished 81st, um, right. stuff like that. But, you know, I was probably finishing about three or four minutes behind the the really talented kids who who would win those kind of races. So that that was about my my level. I've, I eventually got down to 154 for 800 meters, uh, which which is, which is all right. I'm quite proud of that time. It's uh, it's almost a women's world record. Uh, Yarmila <laughs> Kratochvili has run slightly <laughs> slightly quicker than me, but yeah, that's uh, that's about my level. But I mean, with regards to top men's times, I mean, as you, as you know. You've got to be running kind of 144, 145 before you you even kind of get your face on the telly. So I was I was way off that kind of level. Okay, so you realised you weren't going to be the new Seb Coates at a certain point then. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> okay, and you and you went to Loughborough University, didn't you? What did you study there? 
Uh, yeah, I just did geography there, and uh, I, I went there because that was the that was the place to go as an athlete. I, th- I think probably more so back then. I mean, Loughborough's still great today, and there's lots of promising young young athletes that go there. But I think there's probably more options for the athletes these these days. Um, you know, places like St Mary's and and uh, Birmingham Uni and and uh, Bath and you know, lots there's lots of good options up in Leeds. They've got a great setup with all the athletes and triathletes who go there. Um, but yeah, back back when I went, it was it was really it was really regarded as the the only place to go if you wanted to be an athlete. Really, the irony is that I got really badly injured just before I, I went, so I, I spent the whole time doing virtually zero athletics. I I had shin problems, and it was eventually diagnosed as something called compartment syndrome. So I, I spent about three or four years seeing various physios, scratching my head, wondering what the problem was until I eventually got it sorted out and it needed surgery, uh, by which stage I'd left university. So I, I didn't re- I went to Loughborough to run, but didn't do any didn't do any running there at all. Hardly apart, apart from, as I often uh, say, the only running I did was around the local uh, nightclubs and, and student discos. So. <laughs> who, who, who were your contemporaries there at Loughborough at the time? Was there any athletes that made it? That were yeah. you? Yeah, I remember. Uh, I mean, I didn't particularly know him, but I, rem- I remember uh, Steve Backley being there, um, you know, former world record holder for the javelin, four-time European champion, one of one of Britain's greatest ever athletes. And I remember seeing him walking around the local Sainsbury's once with a few pals, and he had a, a shopping um, trolley that was just literally full of, because he's a big guy, obviously, and a thrower, and it was just full of the most immense selection of food you can imagine, you know, rump steaks and loads of bananas and goodness knows what else. Uh, so so he, he was there at the time and he, he was good at a young age as well, you know, so he was already a good athlete uh, when he was there. Jack Buckner, who's recently become the chief executive of UK Athletics, I think he'd finished his studies because he's, he's a bit older than me as well. But I think he was still living and training in Loughborough. So I, so I, would sometimes wander down the track on a Tuesday or Thursday night and I'd see him whizzing round, you know, doing things like 20 or 25 400s and, you know, knocking them all out in 62, 63 seconds like a metronome. Um, of course, around about that time, he won a European title at 5,000 metres, so he was still in tremendous shape. And then other other characters as well, like a, another guy who I didn't really know at the time, and he'll be he'll be well known to certainly British athletics aficionados and that's the the Times journalist Matt Lawton who uh, who writes quite a lot about the sport these days and and gets lots of scoops and exclusives and he's done lots of football reporting as well and and he was he was a very good runner there at the time and he's he's almost identical age to me so we were both there whizzing around uh, Loughborough campus but just oblivious to each other we didn't know that we'd one day be sitting at uh, the same athletics events, you know, covering the same the same sport. And he, he was a much more talented runner than myself as well. I think he I can't remember his exact PBs, but I think he ran well, well inside four minutes for 1500 as a teenager. OK, here's the situation. Our daughter Mia is leaving for her first sleepover. We have friends coming to stay and we just got a puppy. So I go on Instacart and solve everything in one order from Kohl's. Fun PJs for Mia. Oh, new bedding for the guest room. And a vacuum cleaner that actually picks up pet hair. All delivered in as fast as 30 minutes. 
With Kohl's on Instacart, there's no such we can't fix. Visit instacart.com to get free delivery on your first three orders. Offer valid for a limited time. $10 minimum order. Additional terms apply. Good, good. And, and when did you first start writing about athletics? I think after I left Loughborough, I, uh, I started to get one or two smaller jobs, um, did some kind of work, you know, various work placements. I did a, a one year course in, in newspaper journalism, like a national diploma. Basically just tried to get my sort of foot in the door at various places. Um, did some stuff on local weekly newspapers down in the West Country of England. Probably the biggest, longest job I had was just over a year or so at an adrenaline sports magazine, uh, which was called Rush which was all very exciting and interesting. We covered things like snowboarding and surfing. And when I did some bizarre interviews, looking back where I I interviewed a tiger tamer at one stage who works in a circus, you know, a circus tiger tamer, because that's obviously an adrenaline fueled job. Um, So it was interesting, but not not really my cup of tea. You know, I'm a bit more of your kind of classic running geek. Who, who just, uh, you know, just likes to run and obsesses about the kind of trainers he's, he's wearing and what sessions he's got coming up and stuff. So it was, it was all very interesting. It was a good background. But around about that time, I think I was working on that magazine. I found out about, about an organisation called the British Athletics Writers Association. And again, this is pre-internet, you know, even before emails. This is probably, um, I don't know, about 1994, 95, something like that. And uh, I, I saw this organisation and the, the secretary was a guy called Neil Wilson, who was a long time Daily Mail athletics writer. And um, I wrote to him and said, you know, I'd quite like to join this organisation. I'd like to be an athletics writer. Of course, I was completely, you know, naive. I hadn't, I hadn't really had any bylines anywhere to do with athletics. Um, and he, he very kindly wrote back to me, but but offered me some advice. He, he said athletics is maybe a little bit of a struggling sport now and you should perhaps stick with your adrenaline sports magazine, which I which I've subsequently reminded him about <laughs> once, or t- once or twice over the years, because I uh, I just basically ignored his advice and, and just carried on trying to be an athletics writer. And I think initially I, I would have been quite happy to have got a job at any of the running or athletics titles um you know runner's world there was a there was a magazine called called uh today's runner at the time which which then changed its name to running fitness um you know any of these magazines i would have, I would have been quite happy to have got a job but uh, i think a w or athletics weekly was the main one that i'd always read as a as a teenager and it had such a long great history and and i quite liked the the fact it came out so often and, and was quite newsy and and um and I, I just started working working on the magazine initially for free you know I just just did it did uh, kind of work placements and um and then managed to impress people at some stage to the extent that they eventually took me on I think they couldn't, they couldn't get rid of me so so <laughs> had to give me a job at the end of the day that's great. So I guess that must have been in your mind all the time to get a job at, at AW. Do, do you remember? So you started there in 1997 officially. Do you remember your first day walking into the office and, you know, here I am. I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer for Athletics Weekly. Um, not particularly cause, because I'd done all this kind of voluntary work. So I, th- I think I did voluntary work in, in round about 95 because I, I remember being there for a week or two and be, being a little bit upset 
that the World Cross Country Championships was on in Durham. And we worked all week and we got to kind of Friday afternoon and everybody just said, right, we're off to the World Cross now in Durham. And they all went toddling off and drove up, drove up to uh, the northeast of England. And, and nobody invited me or asked me to go. And I was just kind of left sitting there by, by myself. <laughs> so, so I took myself there. I went up there myself. I can't remember how, how I got there. Probably just got a train up to uh, to Durham. Uh, we were in an office in Peterborough at the time. So it wasn't it wasn't that far. It was maybe two or three hours on the train. And I just went there myself, but without any accreditation, um, I just wandered around, you know, just lapping up the uh, the races and, and the atmosphere and didn't even write anything from the event because the, the kind of established AW guys were were there doing the, the report. But that was that was 95 when I was just doing some voluntary stuff. Um, and then, as I say, it, was, it wasn't until 97 that I got the job, got the job properly. So I'd, 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 I'd done dribs and drabs before. Uh, before starting the uh, the job properly, which which I think is fairly normal as well. Um, uh, I remember um, Mel Watman, who is a very very long time Athletics Weekly guy, uh, sad, sadly died about a year ago. I think he he had his first bylines in the magazine when he was about 15 years old. Literally just you know in, did some interviews, wrote some stuff up. I think it was back in the 1950s and had them published. But, you know, didn't work for the magazine full time until maybe a few years later. So it's kind of it's kind of uh, the way it often happens, I think. Yeah, I was going to ask you, but there, I mean, there's lots of characters I can go go through at Athletics Weekly. But Mel was one of the worst, one of those I had on my list there. He was he was editor for about 20 years, wasn't he? And, and stayed involved throughout as a statistician or a editor. Can you tell me some of the stories behind the scenes, how he helped you bed in at Athletics Weekly? I think for many years early on, Mel was um, Mel was the kind of the athletics journalist at the magazine while while it was edited by the founder, who was a guy called Jimmy Green. So G- Jimmy Green founded the magazine in, in 1945, just after the just after World War Two. And he stayed editor for quite a number of years. But he was more into the the kind of the finances, um, you know, the distribution, subscriptions, all, all that kind of stuff. Whereas Mel Watman came on board working with him, but more as an athletics writer. You know, he would do the the kind of journalism side of things. So Mel did that, I think, for quite a few years without being editor. And then he became editor and he was editor for quite some time. I can't remember how many years, but, it, you know, it was, it was probably throughout most of the, uh, the, the 60s and the 70s. I think maybe through the early 80s as well. And then when he left the magazine, he left the magazine when it when it changed owners in the in the mid to late 1980s but then he he kind of returned and carried on writing for the magazine you know right right up until just before he died really a, a year ago he um he he had a phenomenal uh record of of you know the amount of words and and articles that he'd written over the years i mean he must have written a dozen or a couple of dozen books during his career you know, did did lots of the the weekly magazine work for many years. Got through a tremendous amount of of athletics writing. It was always tremendously helpful to myself as well. I mean, he he, he was very much a a fixture at lots of the meetings that I went to during during many of my years at Athletics Weekly. And uh, you, you ask about stories. I mean, there's probably lots of lots of good stories relating to to Mel Watman, but, but maybe one of them, one of my favourites, is. When he, he went to the Los Angeles Olympics in 1984, which is a really successful games for the Brits. 
Sebco and and Daley Thompson and Tessa Sanderson and goodness knows who else. There were, there were lots of lots of medals. Um, but again, this is this is way before the internet and emails and social media and everything. So the only way he could get his words into the magazine was to type them all out and then literally post them back to Britain, where 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 some poor character would have to type it all out again. So on one of the big nights where there'd, there'd been you know lots of success and medals. And you you know how hectic some of these big sessions yeah. can be, you know, very, very, uh, they can be quite bewildering with just everything happening left, right and centre. He, he managed to just get his reports finished in time. And then he had to run, I think, about a mile or so to some postal uh, box just outside the stadium somewhere or some kind of airmail, um, you know, office or something. Where, where he then posted and he just caught the post. He literally just caught it, posted these Olympic reports back where, as I say, they had to go all the way back to Britain through airmail and then and had to be typed in at the other end before they then appeared in the magazine a week or so later. But I mean, this is, this is only 1984 when I was a teenager. So for me, it doesn't seem like, you know, that long ago. I mean, I, I know it is in a way, but, you know, yes. it's it's not. It doesn't seem like like um, such an archaic uh, period, you know, in the great history of the world. It's only 1984, and yet and yet that's what he was having to do. So which uh, wow. which, which, which which shows how quickly things move on, because you know, 20 years later, we're we're watching watching stuff, writing our reports, and then literally pressing a button, and then, and it ends up on the other side of the world. Yeah, that's I mean, you touched upon that a few times. The, the, the role of the internet, and how that's changed things, and the the demise of print i mean i mean what could you just uh, say what the difference is i mean i, I know how, how it's different these days than what it was back in the 80s even but just what you would uh, you know what, what the operation would be around you go to the commonwealth games let's say 1998 and go to the commonwealth games in 2022 what's your job at the commonwealth games what's what, what do you do on that uh, that day of athletics there in 1998 compared to what you got to do in 2022 i've got some vague memory of in 98 of actually having an email address i think i had a hotmail oh. address. I, pro- I, prob- I probably didn't have an athletics weekly email address but i remember having a hotmail one and thinking it was a huge you know novelty to be able to write some message and then just literally you know press a button and, and you send it to someone on the other side of the world and they can read it straight away um and i think i think round about then you know there were some websites that were printing athletics news and results and stuff um, I mean, lots of websites like, I mean, you, you, as you know, in, in Britain, Power of Ten that lists lots of results. I mean, that that hadn't started yet. That didn't start until about 2006, 2007. But I think there were some sites in 98, like like Runners World in the US. Um, I'm sure Let's Run.com had started going by then, where they were where they were starting to print news. I think maybe some newspapers had websites back then. So it was just starting to to appear um but certainly from the athletics weekly point of view i'm fairly sure we wouldn't have had a website in 98 or if we did it would just be like a basic kind of holding site that just basically told people who we were it would probably just be one page that said athletics weekly it might have had our address on it and that would be it you know it wouldn't have lots of stuff on it like it like it does these days so everything that we did back then was was just geared around the weekly print magazine so if I if I covered the Commonwealth Games in in 
in 98, I would just be writing up lots of lots of reports from those games for our print magazine. And typically a games like that would fill two complete issues with all the reports for every event, photos and also the results, which back then we, we had to type them in from scratch. So if I was sitting at an event like like those Commonwealth Games in Kuala Lumpur, I'd be watching the action, typing away, you know, occasionally dashing off to do interviews with athletes. But then also at the same time, sort of multitasking by typing in the results. So all the results would be typed in by the reporters at the events that kind of stopped at the turn of the millennium. And we, we started to uh, have have kind of computers that would do that. Um, but uh, but yeah, certainly in 98, the actual, the actual typing in the results was something that was something that we still would do. And at those games as well in, in Kuala Lumpur, I remember at one stage I was I was in a press room. I wasn't actually in the in the stadium seats. I was in a little media room or quite a big media room. And I remember at one stage I had my head down and I was so engrossed in typing. I had this vague um just vague feeling that people around me were standing up but I didn't know why so I just carried on typing and then I glanced up and realized that the queen who's just who's just died had come walking through the media center as part of a, a tour and she'd walked through and everybody in the room had stood up to pay their you know because it was the queen and I was so engrossed in my work, <laughs> I just carried on typing and just was oblivious to the whole thing until she'd virtually gone out the door, which was quite embarrassing. Um, and then fast forward to to games. But, but you got the results right, though. You got the, the got, seventh yeah, place yeah, I, in the steeplechase right, yeah? <laughs> believe me, there's nothing worse than spelling someone's name wrong in the, in the result, especially, especially if they win a medal. A medal. <laughs> You get their you get their granny on the phone and all sorts complaining bitterly. So yeah, no, I, I had my priorities, had my priorities right. But yeah, I mean, fast forward all all these years and um, yeah, the jobs the jobs completely different these days. Um, I mean, do, doing reports for uh, for the magazine. I mean, e- even even when we still had the weekly magazine just before the pandemic, doing the the, the magazine reports was it was almost like the the final thing that we we would do. I mean, first of all, we'd we'd just tweet the res- tweet results or tweet bits of news like somebody's pulled up injured. I mean, you'd constantly be on social media just popping out bits of news um, relating to the event you're at, and uh, and then doing a website report. And then finally, when all that's done, the magazine report. So there's there's a lot more a lot more elements to to the job these days. What do you think are the expectations of your readers now in this modern era? What, what, what's the expectations of Athletics Weekly? I think they may. I think they mainly see us as as being a, a kind of you know trusted organisation that just kind of gives them gives them news really, gives them athletics news, and and by that I mean you know not not just news about athletes maybe retiring or being injured, but but news relating to basic results, maybe interviews you know pieces on how they train you know just just information on on the sports I, th- I think they uh they just see us as being a a fairly fairly trusted uh group of athletics experts who, who have been around for many years and um and just kind of deliver that deliver that sort of information and uh you know even even though people aren't looking at printed stuff as much anymore 
you know, I think as long as as long as there there is a thirst for athletics news in all its many forms and fashions, then then AW will exist because we can we can give people that information via social media, our website, and you know whatever whatever mediums might exist in 10 or 15, 20 years time because I don't think any any of us can predict how it's gonna gonna work or go really. Um, in the same way that when I started at the magazine, you, you could never imagine something like Instagram or, uh, you know, things like TikTok. I mean, you just they were just beyond your imagination. So, you know, we're, we're going to have similar things in 20 years time, but I don't think you can predict what they're going to be. But but we, we'll use those as a platform to to uh, to give people, you know, athletics news and information. So I think people think people come to us for that. And they, they come to us in lots of different ways. So so some people would, would buy our monthly print magazine because they like to read things in print. They like to sit down and and, um, you know, just just digest it all, whether they're going to read it on a long train journey or on a flight or uh, or, you know, during a, a quiet Friday evening at home. That That's how they like, like to get their athletics news. Some people dip into our website the whole time. Other people might might just look at our, our Twitter feed and that's all that, you know, that's maybe all they do. Um, other people might just look at our, our links and stories when they appear on Facebook. So, you know, I think I think we, we probably have two sets of, of people at the moment. We, we, we'll have the readers who kind of pay for a subscription and they read the magazine and they pay for this. And then we have, you know, just followers as well. You know, people who who just follow the social media, they, they read lots of stuff that we put on our website for free, you know, which is which is all fine. Um, so it's probably those two two groups of people, really. And then, you know, there's a there's a flux going on the whole time as well, because, you know, some, some people might just read the magazine or follow our stuff for six to 12 months. And then they then they might just get disinterested and they might go off and play football or netball or something. And, and then five years later, they'll come back to us. So there's always this kind of flux that's going on as well. But um, but yeah, as, as you know, athletics is a really popular sport. So there's there's always a, quite a big audience of people out out there for us to uh, play to. What what happened? I mean, during the pandemic, it's obviously brought challenges for every everybody and everything really. Um, but AW, you know, the, the title was called Athletics Weekly. But it was a real um, moment that where you, you suddenly you couldn't be weekly, could you? You couldn't get the magazine out weekly. What were the conversations that took place internally and um, that that brought you to the evolution where you got to now yeah it was i mean the pandemic hits hit lots of people quite hard and it, it hits aw pretty hard as well i mean it was a difficult time for us um i remember going to cover the the english schools cross-country championships up in liverpool when the pandemic was just it was just starting to to break out and at that stage we were days away from the lockdown <clears throat> um it was the same weekend as the the Cheltenham Festival for horse racing, which was which has often been cited as a, you know, a super spreader event. Um, and the English schools cross country championships went off at the same time. I remember going there and people, you know, it was a big talking point. People were quite nervous, but there were still people shaking hands, which I remember quite clearly. I, I remember towards the end of the day, about three officials shook my hand. And I remember semi-reluctantly shaking their hand and then quite nervously walking off and get, getting a sanitizer out and sanitizing. <laughs> my, because it was 
it was starting to appear all over the news. You know, people were starting to go into hospital. There was all, you know, people were going onto ventilators. It was we were days away from the lockdown. Uh, so, so that was virtually the last athletics event that was held, certainly in England, before the first lockdown. And I remember traveling back home on a fairly busy train after the event, feeling quite nervous because because also people weren't really wearing masks at that stage either. There was there was advice. There were people were saying masks were a waste of time initially, so people weren't wearing masks. We I was traveling home on the train, quite nervous. And then we then we went into the first lockdown and, and almost immediately the owners of AW at the time just decided to suspend the publication of the magazine. Um, I think they they had the theory that there's no athletics that's going to happen for the foreseeable future. So we'll stop the magazine for the foreseeable future. Now, hindsight's a wonderful thing, but but with hindsight, I think that was possibly the wrong decision because there was a lot of news that could be you know written about relating to the pandemic you know when will events come back you know will the olympics take place there was all there were all the stories about athletes finding weird and wonderful ways to train you know doing mm-hmm. stuff in their living rooms and gardens and, and there was a lot of you know a lot of stuff still to be written about um but the owners i think were thinking about things from a financial point of view and uh, they they decided to suspend the publication. Uh, myself and a few other staff were put on furlough leave for a while. Um, so we went into this kind of limbo where we were watching the watching people trying to get the sport going again, but we we just weren't working at all. And during that period, the ma- the magazine got put up for sale as well. I think during my time at, at AW, I've now worked under about five different owners. So during that summer, we we went to a, a company called 216, um, who are probably best known for doing Wisden cricket publications. Um, they do a magazine on on NFL. They uh, write and publish the England Netball magazine. Um, they do podcasts such as uh, The Good, The Bad and The Rugby, which is quite a popular rugby podcast. Loads of other stuff as well. They do they do loads of loads of uh, media related uh, things. Um, and they bought Athletics Weekly during that summer. And their main decision was to relaunch us in in the autumn when the pandemic was it was I mean, we'd had the first lockdowns. We'd had the first summer. We thought the pandemic was starting to ease a, ease a bit. Competitions were starting to come back and, and they relaunched us. But as a monthly magazine. So the weekly was no more. And we relaunched as a monthly Although I have to say, in some ways that we we kind of it meant the magazine had gone round in full circle because a lot of people assume that AW had been weekly since it was created, whereas the first five years of the magazine from 1945 to 1950 it was a, it was a monthly. Oh, okay. it's actually monthly during that period, and then it went weekly for many years, and now it's now it's monthly again. So we've kind of, we've kind of come round in in full circle. And then of course another part of the plan of the new owners was to do a lot more digitally so we we just try and do a lot more online these days a lot more on our website a lot more on social media and that's uh, that's just forever changing and i obviously i came back to work with everybody else and since then we've we've kind of chronicled the 
the sports return through the through the pandemic. Can I ask you about two other two other people that come to mind when I think about people at Athletics Weekly, and that's Trevor Frecknell, who was a bit of a uh, excellent writer, but he was a bit of a mentor to you as well. And the other one's Mark Shearman as well, the photographer who's been an athletics photographer forever. I think. Let's take those one by one. Tell us about tell us about your time working with Trevor and what he brought to the to the table. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I mean, Tre- Trevor was a, a huge influence on on myself. When I when I started at AW, he was the news editor, and he was a really ebullient character. I mean, lots of athletes from from uh, back in the late 90s and and early 2000s all, all remember him very well. Um, he really really kind of busied himself. He he got to know all the athletes and coaches and officials, and he had a background working in football, and he'd he'd worked in in Nottingham, uh, covering Notts Forest in the in the 70s and the 80s when they were at the peak under Brian Clough uh, winning winning European Cups and Brian Clough was uh, was famously um not too easy to deal with you know he he didn't didn't suffer fools and all this stuff and and he was quite a character and and uh, because Trevor Trevor Frecknell had to cover basically Brian Clough's Notts Forest team week in week out i think it I think it served him really well as a journalist because because after that experience he he was just I think covering the athletics world was easy in comparison you know even even coming up against uh, you know characters in athletics who who can be fairly uh, intimidating like like say the Linford Christies and and uh, you know Tre- Trevor wasn't phased at all because he dealt with Brian Clough and uh, and the world of football in the 70s and the 80s so so the athletics world was was just was just a nice friendly friendly world for him that was that was easy but yeah Trevor was Trevor was great I mean he's such a such a ter- terrific uh terrific athletics writer and journalist um just everything from his his people skills to his his uh his shorthand which which was amazingly fast and impressive uh just just everything was uh everything about him was great and I, I learned a lot working under him um I remember going to the 98 European champs in Budapest where on the final night there were loads of medals for the Brits. Yeah, yeah. I, think, I remember that championships. Yeah, yeah, it was a good one. Yeah. I think I think the um I think the men were particularly uh, successful back then. These days for the British British team, the women seem to do better than the men. But back then the men were bringing in the medals left, right, and centre with people like Colin Jackson, Jonathan Edwards, Steve Backley, and and others. Um, and Trevor was covering the men's events, and I was covering the women's. We still had some good women's successes, uh, athletes like Denise Lewis, I remember. Um, but Trevor had a lot more medals to write about. We were on the final night and he was typing away like fury and I was typing away like fury, trying to get our stuff finished so we could send it back to the magazine for the guys back in back in Britain to design it and then get, get it ready to go to print. And uh, Trevor disappeared for a, a while uh, to gather quotes from some of the athletes and Mary Peters, who was uh, part of the UK, the UK Athletics delegation at the time, you know, on these great successes and people like David Hemery, I think, who were there and, and so on. And and I, I was just glued to my seat. I thought I can't afford to go. I need to carry on typing. I, I just haven't got time to go wandering around the stadium getting quotes. But Trevor did that. He came back. He typed all these quotes in. He finished everything. He wrote about all the men's success successes, which were way, way more significant than the stuff I was writing about. And he finished about 45 minutes before me. 
I was I was still plowing away and he, he'd finished. He was so fast and he was a he was a natural writer. I've I've always found it. It's never been that natural. I've kind of tried to turn myself into an athletics journalist or a writer and it's never come that, that naturally. Whereas he would just just type it and it would just just really flow just really, really naturally. And I think I, I think my my theory is that I think he got that partly from spending years dictating what's known as as on the whistle reports from football matches where a football match would finish you'd maybe have a crazy final five minutes with some with some team coming from you know one nil behind to win two one or something and then you'd have to ring your office and you wouldn't have the luxury of typing and writing it and getting out a word document and being able to move your words around and fiddle with it you'd have to literally ring up and speak to a copy taker and dictate the report and how you dictated it and how that copy taker typed it in. That's how it would appear in the in the news in the newspaper. For me, that's a really difficult job to do. And and Trevor had spent years doing that. And I think that gave him the ability to to write things in uh, in a really um, in a really nice uh, nice manner. Uh, so that's Trevor. Um, as for the other character who you mentioned a moment ago, he's actually ringing me now. <laughs> oh, there he is. There he is. Shearman's ringing me now, and he he, uh, he always gets very uh, very angry if I don't pick up the phone. But I've, I'll, I'll have to ring him back. <laughs> funny, funny. Ask him if he'll do the podcast as well. I've asked him, but he's, he's he says he's too shy. I find that hard to believe. <laughs> but yeah, you must have worked with. I mean, Mark's been in the sport for whoa. I mean. He, when, what, what's his first Olympics? 64? Yeah, so, yeah, so Mark, Mark has an amazing history. Oh. Um, I mean, I, I was born in 69. Uh, Mark's first Olympics was 64 in Tokyo. Mm. I think his first AW cover, I, I often get the years mixed up. It was either 61 or 62. That was his first Athletics Weekly cover. But I, either way, 61 or 62, that's such a long time ago. Um and he's, I mean, as you know, Chris, he's, he's just been an ever present at, at meetings ever since. I mean, he, he's like Trevor Frecknell, in, incredibly industrious. I would say that they both have what they both have in common is a, a great work ethic, um, which I've tried to pick up from from both guys. You know, they, they just put in a tremendous amount of hours and work. I mean, since I've known Mark Sherman, he he's, he's sometimes gone to up to about four meetings a week. Because he might do something on, say, a Wednesday night meeting. Um, he might go to a, a an event on a, a Friday, um, something on a Saturday, Sunday. And then if, if it's a bank holiday, you go to a different meeting on the bank holiday Monday in different parts of the country. Um, you know, he's got, I mean, just a ridiculous number of events that he's he's gone to since the since the 60s. And he's, he's kind of he's known as the, you know, the, the premier athletics photographer really um he uh he goes to lots of these weekend events and then he'll he'll sit at home during the week editing through all these pictures and and um you know he really takes quite quite some care over it all and and i think he turns 80 next year i think i think in 2023 he turns 80 and yet he's still in great shape he's still calling me again as we speak <laughs> we can we can we can pause if you like you can take that call I don't want to annoy mark Sherman. No. <laughs> and um yeah he, he's uh, he shows no signs of of slowing down really and uh and i i also think he because he's in great shape physically i think actually the job has helped him stay 
in good shape. Um, sadly, we we lost Trevor Frecknell about five years ago um, and he hadn't been in great health for a number of years. And I remember him saying to me years ago that he went to see his doctor once and he, his doctor didn't know what job he did. Um, and he guessed, he tried to guess. And he said, I think you're maybe a, a driver or like you drive a van or a lorry because of your your body and your way that you're kind of slouching a little bit and and Trevor said well yeah you, you're not far off actually because I just spend a lot of hours in a chair every day just sitting typing um, whereas Mark Shearman is every weekend he's on his feet you know marching around not just track and field meetings for hours every day you know often from early in the morning until until right through into the into the evening um, but cross country meetings and road road races and road relays. Um, yeah, yeah. I mean, as 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 we speak now, there's the national road relays in Sutton Park this weekend, and and Mark was calling me a day or two ago saying he he might have trouble getting there because of the train strikes, and he was really quite anxious about not being able to get there. He was he was really a bit upset about it. Um, but again, that that shows how how um, you know how much of a workaholic he is. He, 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 even even approaching 80, he really wants to go to this road relay event this weekend. Still got the passion, yeah, great, great. So, what would you say is the biggest? When you think about all the time at Athletics Weekly, what's the biggest single story if you had to pick one? The biggest story in all, all the years at Athletics. Yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, that's uh, that's what jumps out. That is a tough one. Um, there's a few things that just pop into my head straight away. I mean, I'll, I'll kind of just mention them randomly, I, I guess. Um, I mean, London 2012 as a story. I mean, that's just just an event, but just the whole London 2012 thing. I think that that kind of dominates my time at Athletics Weekly. Um, I think Usain Bolt, you know, the athlete, the story, the the man. Um, you know, he, he's obviously transcended, transcended athletics. You know, he's, he's just been a huge, uh, a huge um, element of the sport. Um, as for as for kind of because uh, you, you mean more kind of stories as in news stories. And yeah, yeah. What really kind of things? I mean, there's there's lots that kind of jump out. Um, I mean, I, th- I think of during my early days at, at the magazine, we we had we had a spate of what were known as nandrolone drugs positives. Uh, which which was quite big news at the time. It was it was appearing on national national television. It was in all the newspapers. Um, around about the same time, actually, there was a there was a a big story with the World Championships coming to London, and then it got or they tried to hold it in Sheffield, and then and then it it just got scrapped entirely, and it was just a huge mess. It was it's kind of gone down in history as the Pickett's Lock um incidents i mean that was a that was a big old story at the time i mean this is going back to 2001 Dwayne chambers and his yeah. it's uh anti-doping dis you know his his uh his doping doping ban that was a big story um i'm i'm, I'm actually uh i think i mean Dwayne's an interesting character to dwell on for a moment because he you know he cheated he, he knew that he cheated he he got busted he got banned um but recently i've uh, been watching him watching him on a channel 4 program the sas uh, celebrity program uh, i listened to a very long podcast that he did the other day it was it was almost a 2 hour podcast really interesting on on dwayne chambers 
And uh, and I bumped into him about a year ago at one of the London railway stations. Just randomly, we saw each other. And uh, he's such a reformed character now. I mean, he literally uses his experiences of having gone wrong to basically tell kids, you know, don't do what I did. Do athletics, but do it clean. And he, he's just turned himself around so, so well. It's it's a joke. I, th- I think he's a really, a really great character now. And yet I wouldn't have said that, you know, 15 years ago. Mm-hmm. He, he's um, so, you know, he when he got busted at the time uh, back in, um, you know, back at the, the kind of turn of the millennium and, and, you know, roughly sort of 2004, 2005, 2006, he was in the news a lot. He, he was a big story. Um, I mean, one thing about about athletics is that there's never a dull moment, really. Uh, people have sometimes said to me over the years, do you not get bored covering athletics? And I, I don't at all ever, because, I mean, on one hand, it's so varied. I mean, if you think the difference between, you know, one minute I can be writing about a, a, a teenage long jumper from London and the next minute a 70 year old fell runner from Cumbria. Or a or a, a discus coach from Scotland, or a, you know, it's just so many events and and athletes from all kinds of levels and and standards. It it's such a such a varied sport as well. And just as I say, no, never a dull moment. I mean, literally every week there are crazy stories that that pop out um, just the whole time. I mean, we've just had London Marathon where where there were just lots of lots of strands to to that particular race day. I mean, too too many to mention. And even on the same day, because I was in London covering the marathon, there was stuff going on elsewhere in the country. So down in Cardiff, we had the Cardiff half marathon with with lots of fast times. And and up in up in Glasgow, we had a British record from Ailish McColgan, which which almost got ignored because the London marathon was going on at the same time. Lots of crazy stories and and um, yeah, it's 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 quite hard to actually pluck any out as being the the biggest or or major ones. But suffice to say that that um, if you follow the sport for a few weeks, you'll 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 stumble upon some big stories uh, just as a matter of course. And what about what about you? Must have witnessed quite a few world records in your time. Were you were you there for Bolt Bolt's world records or Rhodesia in London or? Paula in London as well, London Marathon. Which one stands out for you that really made the hairs in the back of your neck stand up? Um, yeah, I mean, one, one of my big regrets is not seeing Bolt's records in Berlin in 2009. That's that's one of the world championships that I didn't go to. I really regret that. I was just just uh, watching the championships unfold on television with with millions of other people. Um, so I didn't see that one. Uh, the the other records that you mentioned, I've, I've seen those and Paul the Radcliffe's um marathon world record from back in 2003 yeah uh, two hours 15 and 25 seconds the time is the time is kind of ingrained in my in my mind um even if the year isn't I'm sure it was 2003 I mean just one of those records where you just almost fall off your seat it was just so so good so fast she was the fastest British athlete that year uh male or female no, no British man ran quicker than Paula that year. And Mel Watman uh, was at that event and I was sitting next to him ju- as we were watching the race unfold. Because at London Marathon, you go into a media centre and you you watch watch the races basically, basically unfold on, on monitors, on TV monitors. And then you'll go and speak to the athletes afterwards. And Mel, Mel was even more shocked than my, myself 
And he said when he started off as an athletics writer, the idea of a woman finishing a marathon in any kind of decent time, you know, even two and a half hours, 245, something was just you just couldn't believe it. And I think he said that that the world record holder at the time, maybe back in the 50s, was Jim Peters, who ran, I think he ran like 217, 218. I'm probably getting my times a little bit mixed up here, but basically slower than Paula Radcliffe. And that was that was the top men's time when Mel Watman started off. And, and the idea of women running a marathon in any kind of time was just ridiculous. Pe- people thought women couldn't do it. So for Paula to run two hours 15 which has since been beaten by Bridget Cost guys run 214 it's um yeah it was really uh really amazing um I've got no doubts as well that Paula was was clean as an athlete you know some people have just thought her time was so good they've they've cast dispersions on her but you know I th- I'm sure Paula was squeaky clean and uh and did things the hard way I mean she was she was very talented worked extraordinarily hard and she led the way really i think with with uh, a way of working that lots of lots of athletes do do these days but we perhaps didn't see 20 years ago which was by building a big team around her of sports injury experts nutritionists coaches people to look at her biomechanics you know she had like a really nice team around her and and it's it's almost become normal for athletes to do that now uh, but Paula was really ahead of her time, I think, doing that back at the turn of the millennium. And it and it's what helped helped uh, lead us to such an amazing time. She, she was. Yeah, I think you just refer to her as Paula and people know, people know you talking about. It. She was at that time, the early 2000s. She was uh, huge. Um, was she somebody who um, when you put her on the cover of Athletics Weekly, was she one of those people you put on the cover? I'll sell more editions of that this week. Yeah, I've I've always had a little bit of a fight over the years with some of our publishers or or magazine owners, because if we put the big name athletes on the front cover, they'd sell more issues generally. Uh, Mo Farah, Paula Radcliffe, Usain Bolt, Jessica Ennis, etc. Incidentally, I think Usain Bolt's had the most covers ever. We we totted them okay. up once. Mel okay. actually helped tot them up. And um, yeah, I can't remember the number, but he he'd had more covers than any anyone else. Uh, I think Mo Farah wasn't far behind. But yeah, you, if if you put uh, if you put those big name athletes on the cover, they so so publishers or owners of the magazine would always want to put them on the cover every week. But I felt editing the magazine, you you, you can't do that. You've got to give some other athletes the chance to go on the cover. Otherwise, you know, how are you going to create the new names? You know, you. So I, yeah. I would always like to put say on a an English schools championship weekend I'd like to you know put one of the young athletes on the cover uh, maybe once a year we'd put a veteran athlete on the cover you know there's some great photos and, and great performances by some of these these veterans who are age 60 70 80 we had a fantastic cover once with uh with um the the psychologist the sports psychologist Steve Peters um, who's known for the um, the chimp uh, book yeah, on yeah. psychology and his work. He, he's also a, a, a world champion Masters sprinter. He has been for many years. And there was a great photo of him just, just slightly ahead of, of another fellow Masters athlete. And they're both kind of gritting their teeth and straining. And, you know, you can see the, the, 
veins popping out of their heads. It's <laughs> a great, great photo. And that was on our front cover. So I, I like I like to have front covers like that. It probably wouldn't have been the biggest seller that year because people wouldn't have known who they are particularly. And, you know, a lot of re- readers might have just thought, you know, the Masters athletes, maybe they maybe maybe they weren't too interested in them. Um, yeah, I think I think it's been important for us to have front covers like that over the years, not not just recycling the same big. Yeah, name. well, I guess it goes back to what you're saying at the start of the conversation. It's about Athletics Weekly being a AW being a um, trustworthy and credible, as opposed to just a, a PR operation of churning out the big names constantly. Yeah, and I'm, I'm thinking as well at the other at the other end of the spectrum, we, we've had athletes like Dina Asher Smith and Katerina Johnson Thompson on our cover when they won English schools titles. Now, you can guarantee at the time when we did that, people wouldn't have really got too excited. It was years before they became senior athletes and, and started to win major titles. You know, people would have glanced at the cover and thought, oh, yeah, that's a that's a talented kid. But that, that would have been it. But then years later, it's actually quite nice to look back and think that we we had those athletes on our front cover, you know, year, years before, you know, Fleet Street started writing about them, for example. Yeah, yeah. Um, you, you've mentioned we mentioned Paula uh, being a, a clean athlete and Dwayne being a bit of a naughty boy in his time, uh, a reformed character now. What do you say to people outside of the sport who know you work in athletics who do uh, are tainted by drugs being uh, doping in the sport and might have a perception that it is a, a dirtier sport than what it actually is? What do you say to those people? Yeah, that, that's that's a good question. Um, I mean, we've seen a big doping story this this week as we speak relating to boxing. Um, big big boxing fights being called off because yep. of uh, because of doping. Um, I mean, the first thing I'd say is that I think I think dope I think cheating or doping takes part takes place in every sport. I think athletics is uh, is really very unfairly um, labelled as a a dirty sport, basically because it it as far as I can see does more testing. If you do more testing, you're going to you're going to find more cheats. Um, I think there are some sports like like football that, that don't test as much and and it kind of gets gets brushed under the carpet more. I just think that cheating and doping goes on in, in, in all sports and all walks of life. Just just whatever, whatever, whatever jobs or careers or sports. You're always going to get people who are who are going to try and break the rules, bend the rules. And then you'll get good people as well and, you know, brilliant people and, and people who, who would never put a foot wrong. I mean, it's just that, I mean, athletics is a is a kind of microcosm of, of life, really. I mean, you've just got all those kind of characters in, in this in this sport. So, yeah, there are there are cheats and there are there are reformed cheats like Dwayne Chambers, who goes wrong. And then he and then he realizes it and really, you know, sets, sets his life back on, on the best path. But there are, you know, good people as well. And. Yeah, I think I think it does have it does have a bad press. I think it's uh, it's really unfair that that a lot of people label athletics as being a a dirty sport. Um, massively unfair, really. And talk about different characters. Who, who's been your favourite interviewees over the years? I think lots of the athletes from my early days at the magazine were were really interesting. They they weren't too careful in what they said in a good way. I think I think more recently we see athletes getting a lot, being a lot more cagey. For example, if they're going to do a competition in a few weeks' time, they're they're kind of told not to talk about it until it's officially announced and all this kind of stuff. Whereas you know you go back 20, 30 years, the athletes just 
they just mentioned it. You know, if they were doing a competition in a few weeks' time, they just they just mention it. So so a lot of the athletes during my early years, like Catherine Merry, Darren Campbell, Steve Backley, I mean, they've all gone on to have successful careers in the media. And I think that's because they're interesting, they're articulate. You know, for for me, it's no it's no surprise really that they've gone on to be uh, gone on to be good in the media. You and Thomas is another another great example. You know, just just colourful colourful examples. I think I noticed on Instagram this this week actually in the last few days uh, some of the the old four by four hundred meter guys have got together for a for a night out. Uh, Roger Black, who's another yeah. another great guy. You know, he comes from a yeah. slightly different era, dare I say, and um, you know just just talks to you really honestly, really interesting. Uh, Jamie Bolsh as well, who was on the same night out. You know, just just good, interesting, colourful characters. Um, possibly, possibly my all-time favourites is the decathlete Dean Macy, yeah. who, who every time I would I rang him up to interview him, he, he was just he would what he was what journalists would describe as good value. <laughs> um, if if you would have to bleep you would have to bleep out all the swear words, <laughs> but if you took them all out, he would just he would be just coming out with these tremendous uh, lines. I think I spoke to him once when he was he was walking he was walking in a field or his garden or something and he had like a some some dog like a pit bull terrier that started attacking him as we were talking. <laughs> oh, was literally attacking his leg or so. He, he was just he was just just uh, crazy but so entertaining. And again, he's gone on to be a success. Unfortunately, not in the world of athletics. I think athletics should maybe try and use him more because he's made and made a real name for himself in angling or fishing. Mm. He's been on on angling television programs and he's always in the angling magazines and and stuff like that. So so yeah, he's uh, possibly my all time favourite athlete when it comes to comes to doing interviews. But yeah, there's so many so many. Chris Rawlinson, the 400 meter hurdler as well. Like I was I quite like talking to him. He he would always give give some good interviews. And then you know athletes from uh, from the current era as well. I mean there's there's lots of great nice athletes around i mean someone someone like dina asher smith she she's not massively accessible these days you know she she's she's such she's so high profile you can't just easily get hold of her to do an interview but when she does do stuff you know she's got she's such a character she's so bubbly it sounds like a bit of a cliche but her her laugh is so infectious you know, she she's I mean, some of the some of the current athletes like Dina are, are, uh, are great, really. Um, it's a shame that we don't get quite as much access to them as, as we may be used to 20 or 30 years ago. But that's just a sign of the times, really, I guess. Mm, you remind, I, I tried to interview Dean Macy once. I, I did interview Dean Macy once and it was uh, uh, he actually was fishing. Uh, but he still he still went ahead with the interview. And he, just, he, he just he just whispered through the whole interview not to disturb the, the fish. So this strange interviews. But he was still effing and jeffing, but whispering it. <laughs> uh, what's what's your favourite events to go to? What's been your favourite? There must be events you go to every year that you, you really enjoy. Um, yeah, I, I was I was like the schools events. Um, if you if, it sounds a bit uh, counterintuitive, but if you go to the bigger ones, like I've just as we speak i've just come away from london, from london marathon um and things like major champ champs like uh, this year we've had the three big major championships as you know the world champs in oregon commonwealth games in birmingham both of which i went to and then the european champs in munich which a couple of my colleagues went to and the problem with those events is there's so many media there that it's very hard to get 
a story to yourself, whatever you get. If you get some great quotes from an athlete, there's invariably another two or three journalists getting the same quotes or even more than two or three journalists. Um, so it's very hard to to get anything ex- exclusive and you write your report up and you'll publish it or, or we will publish something on our website. And it just kind of gets watered down by the fact that everybody else is writing about the same subject. So one of the reasons I enjoy going to the grassroots events and, and smaller club events or the schools events are because I'm, I'm often the only journalist there. So if I go to, say, an English schools championships, cross country or track and field, if I'm speaking to a, a 13 year old Dina Asher Smith or Mo Farah or Katerina Johnson Thompson, I'll be the only journalist talking, talking to them. And I can write the story up. I'm the only person that's going to be printing this story or the report from that championships. And I kind of get it all to myself, which I quite like. And also the youngsters, they're always thrilled to be interviewed. So you've often got parents excitedly standing half a yard behind, you know, <laughs> hanging on every word, ho- hoping that their son or daughter, you know, won't be too shy or tongue tied. Uh, you know, a proud coach is standing five yards away. Taking photos, taking photos of you interviewing their, their, exactly. their son or daughter. Yeah, yeah. Knowing that they're, that's the that's the first proper interview that their athlete has done. And it's yeah, it's just it's just nice. And it and it's a proud moment for them. London Marathon, which we've, we've just had recently, I I probably got a bit more of a kick out covering the mini marathon on Saturday because I spoke. I think I pretty much spoke to all the winners there. Than, uh, than the main marathon on 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 um, Sunday, you know every every athlete you're interviewing, you've just you're doing it in a group. There's lots of journalists there. You're all getting the same story. Whereas the mini marathoners, I kind of had each each winner to myself. And yeah, I mean I'm sure some of those mini marathon winners from a few days ago will, will go on to be the, you know the Mo Farahs and the David Weirs in future. I've got got no doubt about that. And it's it's just nice to look back and. And know that you were you were one of the first guys to to actually cover them. And I guess people listening to this might not realise it, but at a lot of the major championships, a new feature has been the media races at the, at the major <laughs> championships, where the the media have a chance to step onto the you know the hallowed uh, track yeah. and actually have a 800 metres or 1500 metre race. Um, I'm not actually sure when that tradition started, but it seems to have been in place for a few, a few years now. Uh, what what are your fond memories and which which stadiums have you have you raced in? I, th- I think the journalists take it far too seriously for starters. <laughs> they, they, um, I, I did one uh, earlier on this year in in Eugene, Oregon, at the World Championships. They had a media race over 800 meters. There must have been about 10 or 15 athletes or, or media. I'm not sure if you can call them athletes. Well, actually, <laughs> actually, some some you. I think the um, I think the fastest guy the fastest guy did about 154 or something for 800 meters. So. Okay. so uh, they, they can be quite good some of the some of these uh, some of the journalists some of the younger journalists um, but about 10 or 15 at least had spikes on so when oh, I, right. I, very I, serious <laughs> yeah, when I first started doing media races a few years ago no one would have spikes on or, or if you did everybody would would point at them and take the mickey and say oh you've got spikes on you're taking <laughs> but now they're all turning up with spikes on even some super shoes and and all sorts so it's uh, so yeah some of the journalists take it take it uh, quite seriously. Um I'm always a bit always a bit disappointed that some of the the higher profile media never do it. 
So you could have people like Steve Cram, Colin Jackson from BBC doing it, but they never maybe they don't want to risk their reputation by getting beaten by a, by a load of uh, by a load of journalists. Uh, but but they, they never do it. And um, yeah, it's, it's just quite fun generally. I mean, they, they'll often stick on, you know, kind of comedy music like um, Wacky Races on the Tannoy. <laughs> <laughs> all the all the, the journalists are whizzing round, and you've just got this kind of comedy music playing and uh but it's you know it's quite a thrill for the journalists because mo- most most of them are you know they're they're like me they're you know they wanted to be athletes but just weren't good enough so they they ended up writing about the sport instead and uh consequently you know many of us still run to keep fit as well do do occasional races so it's it's quite a thrill to actually go onto the main stadium uh, during a championship so these media races are usually held in the afternoon between the morning and the evening session so the stadium will be largely empty but you get to run on the same track they'll give you a, a number with your name on it like you know like the the proper athletes get um you'll sometimes warm up in the same same area and you and they'll have the big screens as well so you can glance up and see yourself on the big screen as you're as you're trundling around and it and it it also gives you an appreciation of how good the top athletes are because you know the kind of performances that they do compared to the media you know many of whom are, i mean lots of these media are guys who are maybe still in their 20s or 30s you know they train quite hard still and and yet you know they're a million miles away from from the uh, elite athletes who who are representing their countries at these championships so it, it kind of um it makes you appreciate just how how tough it is as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you do you still go to cl- do you go to club nights regularly? Do you still run a bit? Um, yeah, I do, but I'm 53 now, so the track isn't too kind to my my legs. So I've uh, I've turned into a bit of a park runner. I'll I'll do park runs occasionally, and I've got I've got a beach near my house. So if I do if I do reps, then I'll I'll tend to do them on the beach because it's a bit uh, a bit kinder to my legs. But uh, this is in Cornwall, yeah. You'll go and do regular park runs there, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I'm, I'm based largely down in Cornwall, so uh, I've got a park run near me called the called the Eden Project Park Run, which yeah, is yeah. quite quite a hilly one, quite picturesque. So that's my kind of local park run, and a few beaches nearby as well, which, as I say, are a bit a bit kinder to my old legs these days than than uh, storming round a synthetic track. <laughs> Good, good, good. Well, we'll wrap up shortly, but uh, do you think you've done 25 years now, Jason? Do you see yourself? always working in athletics now whether is this this your career forever now um i think so yeah i I sometimes joke that i must have a life sentence at athletics weekly i mean you can't see at the moment but if i twist my camera slightly around you'll you'll see i've got bars on the window the window here to stop me stop me getting out yeah i think i'm uh i'm kind of stuck in the stuck in the same job now but but yeah, yeah, I mean, who can complain? I mean, I, I write about people running, jumping and throwing for a living. I mean, it's it's a dream job. People often say if you can turn your hobby into a job, then I mean, what's better than that? I mean, to actually get paid to basically do your hobby as a as a job. I mean, it's it's great. I mean, lots of the lots of the bits of the job that I do as well. I mean, there's some slightly unglam slightly uh less glamorous bits as well as i as i mentioned earlier on we've we've had to type in some results over the years you might have to type in some fixtures things like that but it's that's not that bad whereas most of the time i'm you know going off to things like london marathon and other events and and uh, seeing these top athletes at close hand and uh 
I think I think I think years ago when I was 11, 12 years old and I first got interested in, in athletics, I was always fascinated in what made athletes tick. You know, I was always really interested in the training programs and training schedules and what kind of sessions they did and what stuff they did in the gym and and so on and so forth. And I think years later, was it more than 40 years later? I don't, I don't think I've really lost that fascination. I think this I think this week I, I remember Googling uh, Jake Whiteman plyometrics because I'd <laughs> I read somewhere that he was uh, he'd started doing these plyometrics to give him a bit more elasticity in, in his ankles and Achilles and calf muscles, which then gives him the power to be able to sprint past someone like Jakob Ingebrigtsen, which he did this summer to win the world title. And I was kind of looking at this and thinking, hmm, I wonder whether plyometrics can actually help a 53-year-old jogger like this. <laughs> but the, the point is, I still have this kind of fascination in, in, in what makes athletes tick and kind of taking the, the, the things that they do and, and just transferring them to my considerably less talented body. Yeah, it's always always a pleasure to to speak to to athletes who are successful and and their coaches and you know physios and and um you know back but you know their support team they they can be just as interesting and I've I've never really quite lost lost the fascination in uh, in all that. Okay, great. Well, wonderful. Thank, I could talk to you for hours, Jason, about this. We could bounce around athletics for hours, but I know Mark Shearman is desperate to speak to you, so <laughs> I, I don't want to be the person who holds up Mark Shearman. Um, he's, he's got a job to do this weekend, so thank, thank you very much for your time, Jason, today. That's all right. No problem. Cheers, Chris. Thanks for listening to Athletics Life Stories with Chris Broadbent. Please tell your friends and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. Sports Social Podcast Network.